0: Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another, faith by the same spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to the another the to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The word of the Lord.
1: Martin Luther King Jr., in the, uh, the leader of the civil rights movement in the 60s, famously said this about the value of humanity. We are created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God gives humanity uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard, Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. King's belief in the authority of God as our creator was what undergirded his fight for civil rights. Much of what has been pushed on um, in civil rights and equal rights since has been really good stuff in the West where we have created a place where people of all walks and all backgrounds can have equal protection under the law and access to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I think as years have moved on since people like King though, uh, the idea of equal rights has moved further from that foundation of being made in the image of God is the reason why we all have value. And instead, equality is defined now by more or less by what you do or can do. So it's if I can't do what you can do, we're not equal. and there's, a, there's some truth in that, but the implication, the underpart implication, is that your worth, because if I say that we're equal, then that's your worth, your value, right? So the implication is that your worth, your value, equality, is based on what you do, can do, or have done. And, you know, that plays right into our culture. We are a performance-driven culture, a success-driven, an achievement-driven culture. And we value ourselves based on what we do. You value yourselves, We compare ourselves based on our achievements, on our career, on our finances, on our athleticism, whatever it is. We are a do to equal culture. But the consequence of any sort of a culture that builds its equality on the basis of what you do or can do is that it strips out value. It makes very shaky the foundation of value for people who can't do. I mean, where does it leave the disabled? The sick, the dying, or simply people who are untalented, unintelligent, haven't accomplished much. It actually leaves them on shaky ground of saying, your value is not much. And whether we give you rights down the line is not clear. Gospel equality, however, is based on a creator. It's because you are made in his image. Because of whose you are, and every human being has equal value and worth. There's dignity, value, and worth in every human who's imprinted with the image of God from the creator. Basically, you have value because you are, not because of what you do or have done. And the church is called the body of Christ. It is the gathering of all people where none are greater, none are lesser. All are one in Christ of equal value and equal worth. Now, in Corinth, which we've been talking about the past few weeks, they had a lot of issues. And one of their issues, they were always trying to see who was better, who was greater. One of their issues had to do with how they expressed their spirituality. In chapter 12, verse 1, Paul starts on this particular issue, and they had many. It was now concerning spiritual gifts. It could mean spiritual gifts. It also actually could mean spiritual people, and Paul's being sarcastic. Those of you who think of yourselves spiritual, more spiritual than others, because over chapter 12, 13, and 14, he's dealing with an issue of division that was based on those who thought they were spiritually greater than others. So as we're the spiritual, you're the unspiritual. We're the insiders. We're closer to God. We do things that you don't do. We're high and in, you're down and out. And there was a view that Paul's getting into here about certain gifts or expressions of God through a person. And in Corinth, they valued certain things over the other. And most communities do this. Most churches do this, even, even when we're not trying. But he specifically goes through a list that's, uh, that's a famous list in some church circles. In chapter 12, um, and specifically in verses 8 through 10, he gives a list Of what's called spiritual gifts or expressions, manifestations of the Spirit of God in people, and I'm going to go ahead and read it just to remind you. If this is new or fresher to you, Paul writes: For to one is given through the Spirit uh, through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And then he sums it up in verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. Now, you've heard me talk about this, but I'm going to go ahead and hit on it again as we just break apart this before we get into the rest of the chapter. When Paul gives a list based on how Greek writing was done, and he was writing in a Greek context, in a a Greco-Roman context, Greek lists are generally not exhaustive, meaning these aren't the only gifts that God gives to people. They are either samplings of the sorts of things that God expresses himself in, or he's writing the particular ones that he does because there was a problem in that particular place with these particular things. So sometimes his lists are like targeted at people, And sometimes it's just sampling. It's like, these are the sorts of things that God does. Let me show you some of these gifts. It is unclear which of those it is. And on top of that, we know that lists are not exhaustive because there are several other places where Paul lists spiritual gifts or giftings, empowerings by God. It includes apostles and teachers and helping and administrating, serving, exhorting, generosity, leadership, mercy, Evangelist, pastor, fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and celibacy. All of these are part of how God calls, empowers, gifts people for the sake of living out their lives and benefiting the wider community. One of the challenges when we get a list of gifts like this is that if you've been in churches for a long time, you can leave feeling guilty, trying to figure out what your gift is. And if you see that original list from chapter uh, 12, verses eight through 10, you think, well, I, I don't do that and I haven't done that and I'm not sure what I do. But don't assume you don't have one of these God may be still operating through you and wanting to bring you to new things that you haven't done yet. And don't limit God and how he wants to use and empower you. One of the other challenges we find with lists like this is how do you define what's being said in the actual list? So I'm gonna give you an example of one because I've wrestled with this stuff for actually several decades, okay? So I've read through this stuff, read a lot of stuff on this for several decades, and I'm gonna give you just some of the challenge of approaching some of these things. One of the gifts that's listed is an utterance of wisdom, for to one is given through the Spirit an utterance of wisdom. Now, what does that mean? Those of you who have been in the church for a long time have, have a definition of that, depending on the church you've been a part of. So in some circles, there's a the popular understanding of that is a supernatural, sudden insight. In other circles, in the same realm of faithfulness within Christianity, they would say this is simply a wise person talking. An older person, a wise person talking. What's interesting here is Paul does not define what utterance of wisdom is. So how do you know what it actually means? So we're going to play a little bit of how do we interpret the Bible, okay? This is really just part of like how we approach Scripture, how do we understand anything that God calls us to or is saying. One of the ways that we approach how, what something means is we look at the, the verse, the phrase, the word in context of the sentence, the passage, and the wider articulation of what is the point of this whole thing. And so if you read this little phrase in chapter 12, or in chapter 12 through 14, you actually don't get much insight. But then the next thing you do when trying to understand a verse or a word is how does the author use it elsewhere in that particular letter or book? And then you actually compare it to how the word or term or phrase is used elsewhere in scripture throughout the whole Bible to get a fuller understanding of what is underneath it and what it could possibly mean. So we do know this. Wisdom, like the word knowledge, were both key words in Corinth. The Corinthians, according to their cultural narrative, valued wisdom and knowledge. In chapter 8, Paul talks about how knowledge puffs up, right? And in chapters 1 through 3, the big issue is wisdom, which was basically philosophical knowledge and insight and rhetoric. And people wanted to be wise and philosophical, And Paul says, remember, I came to you not with wisdom. All I did was preach Christ crucified. Oh, wait, that's the wisdom of God. And he's flipping the idea of wisdom on the head of the Corinthians. And he basically points out that wisdom, true wisdom, in chapters 1 through 3, is the cross of Christ. The gospel, Christ died for you. So it would actually, if you're going to define the phrase or term within how Paul uses it elsewhere, it has something to do with an articulation of words or phrases that are said that points out the gospel or points people to the gospel or reveals the message of the cross. But does it actually mean that? I don't know. I'm, I'm actually kind of just using how I interpret other scripture to give some stabbings at it. And one of the problems is we all come with assumptions on on what uh, the Bible must say or what's normal to us. You know, one of the things that we do often is as modern people, we have bought into the Enlightenment's dualistic thinking of there is natural and supernatural things. Thomas Jefferson famously tried to cut out all what he called the supernatural stuff out of the Bible anything that he couldn't explain by science alone. And we've bought into that same division so that we take things and say, this is supernatural, this is not supernatural, this is normal. And in some circles, they try to define everything in this passage as very natural. Let me give you a reasonable answer. And others try to define every single thing supernaturally. But we're buying into a modern dualistic thinking. Paul doesn't say this is a supernatural, this is not. So we don't know whether this is a, A sudden and powerful rushing of God's power to give somebody a word of wisdom, or whether it's something that's built up over time through going to seminary and school and being a wise person. But we have assumptions that are based on maybe the the denomination we've been a part of, the churches we've been a part of, or our own personal experience. I've I've never healed anyone, therefore God doesn't miraculously heal. Or, I've spoken in tongues, foreign languages my whole life. That's how everyone must experience God. We take our experience and push it back on scripture. But, the one commentator that I read that was the exhaustive commentator, 1500 pages on 1 Corinthians, I didn't read all of them, but he has 60 pages on these three verses and he's surveying everything that's out there. And he says within faithful Christianity, okay, within faithful Christianity, there's basically no consensus on how to define most of these terms. And I think that means something. That means one, this is not the main thing. Two, we should always approach it with humility. Approach it with humility with regards to others and how God works in their lives and with an openness to God that might defy your experience. If you've never experienced God in some powerful way, be open to the fact that he probably still works that way. So humility and openness to God. And the whole point of all of these actual, you know, the the gifts is that it is the Spirit of God that fills and indwells everyone. We see this in verses 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And basically the point that he's getting at before he even gives this list is, Hey, all of you, Corinthians, the Spirit of God indwells every believer. God is alive in every one of you, and his power and his grace are still alive. And the way that God has gifted you, whether that is natural or supernatural based on how we define it, whether it is sudden or built up over time, it's unclear, is for the building up of the body of Christ. It's not about you, it's not about attaining, right, as the Corinthians were trying to do, Paul wants to build up. It's why in chapter 14 he says, I'd rather speak plain words in the language that's understood in my church community than speak in the foreign language or an unknown tongue. But the big idea behind this is God works through individuals, empowered by the Spirit for the common good. And so, actually, the point is not what is your gift, but rather you are a gift. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you, and you've been called into a community. And that community, Paul then goes on to say, is the body of Christ. In chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 12 through 15, we read, For just as there is one body, the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one body. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I think the inferiority-superiority thing was going on in Corinth, where the ones who were spiritual or expressing their spirituality in particular ways were feeling superior and the others were less so we're the insiders, you're the outsiders. Those who were down or didn't have the same expressions felt like they weren't really an in, weren't really a part of it. And he goes on to use that same metaphor like you guys are one body. You're one body. Some of you are eyes and some of you are ears and some of you are hands. And you don't say, hey, I don't need my hand. I don't need my feet. I don't need my eye. And you don't press this medically, by the way. This is just a metaphor. Um, But he's countering that spirituality that was superior, inferior, insider, outsider. And he's basically saying what you do or can do or have done does not increase or decrease your standing in the family of God. How others view you does not matter. You are a part of Christ's body if you are in his church he has a powerful statement there in verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Individual differences of ethnicity, which was a major dividing point back then, or social status, the other major dividing point, or gifting does not affect your worth or standing. You are all one in Christ. And every one of us is equally necessary. No one greater, no one lesser. Most people have some part of their body they would like to change if they could. I did not have that until I had kids. And then my kids grew up and became adversaries. It's about middle school that your kids cease to become kids and become adversaries. And they began to point out things that I never had noticed before. I was perfectly content with me. And somewhere along the line, my kids giggling about something. I think it was a photo that was taken. They could see it more in the photo. All right, what is it? Well, your nose is crooked, Dad. (laughs) Like, no, it's not. I've had the same nose. I like my nose. I've had my nose my whole life. No, it bends that. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. No. What are you talking about? It's perfectly straight. I had never even noticed, but, you know, know, partly like I compared to another friend of mine whose nose was really curved, and I'm like, ah, just a little bend. I had never noticed it. And that's why many of us do things like plastic surgery, right? Like, I want to change it. I want to get rid of this. I want to cut that off. You know, get that nose fixed, right? Some of you actually feel that way, like the wrong part, like you don't fit, like you're the ugly one. Paul is saying, that is rubbish. (laughs) In verse 18 to 20, he writes, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We are all integral, regardless of what we do. don't cut yourself off from the body either and try to live the solo Christian life. It's dismembering Christ. And Basically, Paul is saying, you are integral because you exist. And together, we are Christ's body. We need one another. I went through a time in my life when I was younger when I lived a very solo faith. Individualistically, all I needed was me. And it was, am I right about stuff? Am I right with God? How am I doing spiritually, morally, right? It was all about me, and if I was doing fine, I felt good. But I've grown to understand how immature that view was. I need this church. Not Christ Church Vienna, like I don't need the job here. Well, I do, but um, I need the local church. My life in Christ is actually bound up in yours, And that's our calling as the body of Christ. The calling that Paul is talking about, which is amazing, is not the body of Christ is the big C church, All Saints Day, like all the churches globally. That's not what he's talking about when you are the body of Christ. He's actually talking about the local church. The local gathering, this particular iteration of a body of believers come together and saying, we're in this together. This is Christ's body for Vienna, for D.C. We are one of Christ's bodies, if you would, locally placed, called together to be Christ to the world. And we get this more clearly in verses 24 to 27 when Paul writes, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. What's amazing is that phrase that's right there, Now you that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What he doesn't say, as one commentator points out, is um, if one member suffers, you all should suffer with him or her. You should. Or if one member is honored, is, gets something good in their life, all of you should go and celebrate with them. You should. He rather says, it does happen. Think about that. When one member suffers loss, sickness, life challenge, all of us suffer in some way. When one member celebrates, in some way we all are carried on in a rejoicing. Robert Banks wrote, whether consciously or not, the body has a common nerve. There's a common life in which each is identified with the other. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but there's something spiritual and sacramental, if you would, in the people of God who come together and say, we are this church. And I think he's saying, look, you do suffer and rejoice, so live into that. And be Christ in that place. This has incarnational language to it. You know, God Almighty became enfleshed at Christmas. We, as the body of Christ, not just when we gather on a Sunday morning, we, as the people who are committed to one another, not only have Christ present with us, but we are Christ. And in a sense, he's saying, not only for those outside of us, but, you know, do you want to know Christ? Do you want to experience him more fully? We need each other. And we will experience more of God the more tightly we are linked with one another. So that involves commitment, time, working together, playing together, serving together, eating together, inviting people into your life. In order to be the body that suffers and rejoices together, we actually need to know one another. And cultivate what Christ is calling us to, and Paul is calling us to, which is love. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 29 to 31, we read Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? The answer is no, not all do all of these things, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And what are the higher gifts? Well, some some people look at it and they're like, well, it must be apostles are first, but actually it goes on to say, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. These are combined together. And then he goes on to say, if I speak in the tongues, that's not tones, that was me typing it, tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What is the highest gift? Love. You want the most excellent way? It's love. And that desire, earnestly desire, can also mean strive or compete. Hey, I got a call for you. Strive and compete to out love each other. You want to cultivate the deepest gift of the Spirit? It's love. And love orders, orients, and limits all of our gifting. You may have the gift of teaching, but there are times when people don't want to hear your teaching or mine. And love will limit that as I understand that I just need to walk with somebody and not teach. So God calls us to exercise our gifts, whether those are your abilities or it's supernatural or normal or built up over time or sudden, under love. Not all of us will prophesy, not all will teach. And I know this is true. Like one of the gifts that's listed uh, not in our passage is administration organization. Do you know that there are people I've heard that are gifted with spreadsheets, Excel spreadsheets and numbers? It's a bizarre gifting. (laughs) It is definitely spiritual and it is a gift. It's literally a gift to the body of Christ. I've seen it and avoided it. Like I see those things and I'm like ah give me sentences Spreadsheets, oof. Not all of us should sing with a microphone. But some of you should. It's a gift to all of us that the Spirit is operating through. All of us, however, are created for love. Everyone has capacity to love or receive love. Do you know that somebody with Down syndrome is probably not going to achieve senior vice president of a major company? They will not be a law firm partner. And because of physical uh, dexterity challenges, they're not going to be phenomenal at sports or even things like playing a guitar would be incredibly challenging. (laughs) But people with Down syndrome can love and receive love. I'm going to read a more extended thing here that's going to be near the end of our time. A lady named Amy Julia Becker, writer for Christianity Today and other things. Here's what she wrote about love. I started thinking about the words in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's famous passage about the nature of love many years ago when Penny was born. I started to understand what Paul meant when he said that even if I have all the intellectual prowess and fancy-sounding spiritual truths in the world at my command, it all means nothing without love. Amy Julia went to Princeton. Last spring, that same passage came back to me as I looked at our daughter Penny and recognized the ways in which her life embodies love. She is patient and kind. She keeps no record of wrong, which is not to say she doesn't also have, behave in unloving ways sometimes. Penny has helped me to understand the nature of love. Our daughter Penny is 13 years old. She's in the seventh grade. She loves Taylor Swift and Fuller House and wedding dresses. She says her most embarrassing moment in life was when she found out the boy she had a crush on didn't like her back. She's a middle school girl who applies too much makeup when she wants to look fancy. Penny also has Down syndrome. Penny is ready with a hug for anyone who will receive it. She's quick to write a note of encouragement, quick to express concern for anyone in pain, and quick to forgive. She still grabs my hand whenever we walk anywhere together. And yet, Penny wept over the loss of a friend earlier this year. She wrote about the anger she feels when her younger brother doesn't listen to her. She knows the hurt of adolescence and being left out. Penny is happy, in the midst of pain and rejection. Her attitude emerges of an ability to hold on to hope in the midst of suffering, redemption in the midst of pain, and forgiveness in the midst of hurt. Penny embodies the great poem about love penned so many years ago by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, that love is patient and kind, always believing, always forgiving. If this is what love looks like, then I have spent much of my life rejecting love. I've been too busy and too careless to be inconvenienced, challenged, and slowed down by love. I've been too ready to grab knowledge rather than receive wisdom. I've been too eager to prove myself, to receive accolades rather than turn my gaze beyond myself to the beauty of my neighbors. In the morning, I hurry Penny to the front door. I receive a hug. She walks herself to the bus stop, all four foot five. Inches of her plotting a deliberate rhythm. I know that every moment of, of the day ahead will be more challenging for her than it ever was for me. But I'm confident that she will navigate the challenges, the rejections, and the giddy energy of middle school. She will navigate it all with love. And I will hold on to the promise that love never fails. Penny is probably not going to lead an organization express giftings in the way that we try to look at them. A penny can love and receive love. The gospel redefines our value and our worth and our highest calling and points us to the cross, the definition of love. Jesus came down and died for us because he loved us. He wants every one of us to know and experience the depth of his love for us. When we feel unworthy, incapable, not gifted, God wants you to realize how much he loves you. We are all made. Not all of us will have every gifting or even some of these. But we are all made to love and be loved. To love as Christ has loved us. And to really remember how much we are loved. As Christ, The body of Christ. Let's pray. God our Father, you sent your Son to die for us, not only to show us love, but to bring us within the reach of your saving embrace to experience that love. But you did not just call us individually, you called us into community to love one another, to be empowered by your Spirit in amazing and powerful and new and fresh ways to bring healing and wholeness and growth and truth and order and grace and beauty. And you've brought us together to be the body of Christ here, now, in this place. May we trust you, follow you, and love one another. Amen.